What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Today's guest is Miss Lauren Napolitano. She and I met in Miami randomly uh, a couple years ago during Art Basel, and she works for the Shooting Gallery and is also um, an artist and illustrator. She joins me via Skype. We talk Miami, Joshua Petker, men and women, which I try to articulate myself in the beginning of this thing about the the issues between a male-dominated art world and a spot for women to 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 shine. And I I don't I still have not really figured out a full full like a good way to articulate myself, which is not uh, which is typical, in other words, uh, for me. So, like, as you can hear me rambling through this nonsense. But so we, I try to talk that, and I think we reach some... I think I get to some point eventually. We talk participation, egos, the Bay Area, Brazil, payphones, art movements, gentrification, crack, Mike Giant, illustrations, loss-inspiring creation, hair, uh, impermanence, granny stuff and odd numbers so as always make sure you go check out mikemaxwellart.com you can click on the podcast link over there it'll take you to the podcast page and show you all the information about each guest that's been on the show and and what we talk about Uh, you can also click on the blog where there's some more in-depth links uh, and images from each of the artists that have been on the show so make sure you go do that. You also have the option to donate to the podcast over there if you are so inclined. There's a PayPal link. Just click on that. It'll give you all the information. You can take care of it. Happy to have Freakware.com as a sponsor for this show. Uh, you can check them out at Freakware.com. That's F-R-E-K-W-A-R-E.com. Again, that's Freakware.com. F-R-E-K-W-A-R-E. It's the hardy, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that you guys are all great listeners and have listened to the past couple episodes uh, that Freakware has been sponsoring. You get an idea of, of what they're about and, and who they're sort of marketing to, I guess. Um, people who are sort of against the grain, who might, you know, do something that society deems not quite in the norm of society, but maybe is beneficial to the society. And, you know, a lot of times people get chastised and called names such as freak uh, for thinking outside of the cliche of the box. But um, it's a real thing. So go over there, freakware.com, F-R-E-K-W-A-R-E.com. Use the code word live free and you'll get 20% off your uh, your order. So... It's like free shipping, free taxes. Uh, probably not free shipping. Shipping is so expensive these days. God, that just sounded like such an old person sentence. But it is. It's it's you know, it's getting harder and harder to be able to be a, a you know, an independent business just in terms of the cost of production, uh, shipping, website hosting. The whole thing is. There's not a lot of profit in it, and it takes somebody with a lot of heart to uh, to do the thing. So, do me a favor. They're they're supporting the podcast, so go support them and do a solid over there. And uh, pick up the pick up the red shirt with crow on it. That one's the jam. Um, super comfy. Use code word live free. You'll save twenty percent. 
Okay, so I think that is it. If you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at Live Free Podcast. You could like the like page where I post up stuff uh, about the artists who have been on the show, um, stuff that they're up to. Even after the show, I'll post links to their art shows that they're doing or maybe, you know, something cool that they're up to. So go like that if you like pages on Facebook, like like pages. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Maxwell Art. It's the same thing for Facebook and uh, the Instagrams. And Lauren has a Tumblr, but just Google Lauren Napolitano. She gives her Tumblr at the end. Um, okay, I think that is all the business. So, uh oh, Pete Dog is getting in on the end of this. What's up, Pete? He's pissed. All right. So, with all that said, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen. Miss Lauren Napolitano. All right, let's give Lauren a call. Lauren Napolitano, I see you moving this time. (laughs) Mike Maxwell, hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. It's been a while since I hopped on the front of your bike in Miami. <laughs> I know. I was gonna. I was gonna talk about that. How randomly we met, sort of, via the uh, in Mass Boys. Yeah. And the the strangeness that is Miami. It was pretty funny. What's uh? Where are you at? Are you at the gallery? Um, I'm. Yeah, I'm sitting in the gallery right now. I'm actually sitting in Joshua Petker's little project room oh his new show is up right now right or was yeah that? so we've we divided the space into project rooms so there's two small shows uh mixed in with the two big shows that happen every month i've been trying to get joshua to do the show like i like for the past I, i've been doing the show like two and a half years now and i've he's been one of the guests mm-hmm. that i've been trying to get on like continuously like and we never can sort of get our <laughs> timing together properly you know yeah, he'd be pretty inter- interesting to sit down and talk to. I know, an and you know, I haven't got to talk to him for a while, but I've never really been able to have a like a real conversation with him. That's what's so nice about doing this show. It's like the ability to sit down and talk to somebody for a while. Like we don't really get that opportunity very often. Right, it's a nice one-on-one time. Yeah, right. So I think right out the gate, I kind of wanted to mention uh, how we we got set up to do this. Um, you kind you came through when. Uh, a bunch of other women sort of let me down. Uh, and I made I made this Facebook post. Like, I'll just explain it, which I've actually removed from my timeline. I haven't deleted it, but I removed it because, like, after going back and reading it, it sounded so much more frustrated than maybe I actually was. Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, what, had, what had happened was I, I really tried to make the show diverse and get, like, stories from all different sorts of groups of people because I know I have those different sorts of groups of people listening to the show. So, like, based Mm -hmm. on Google Analytics or whatever, my audience is, like, 40% women. So I really want to have female artist stories, right? Because if if that's the audience, I'm sure the audience wants to hear those things. And so I put out an invitation to 10-plus artists, female artists, to, to be on the show. And that's not to say that no female artists do the show. I have a, a fairly good amount of women that have come on the show. But so, like, and my thinking is, is a lot of times 
and this is a discussion I've had with female artists, is that, and maybe even any females in any type of uh, profession, that there's oftentimes a feeling that men keep them from a particular uh, profession or, like, there's, like, this good old boys club that's working against women. And as a man, I feel like <laughs> I, I, I hear that a lot, so I'm sort of lumped into that group. And I want to make a, a, a conscious effort to, like, show that not everyone is like that. Do you know what I mean? Does yeah, that I think that, you know, the art world is definitely very heavily male-dominated. And, but I think it's, it's up to you as a woman to, like, get upset by that. But, I mean, I see all these pictures of, like, women painting murals, and they're on a ladder in heels and a skirt. Like, to me, that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, like, men love that kind of shit. Whereas, like, if it's just a woman in her studio normally painting what she normally wears when she's painting, then, like, no one cares. But, uh, you know, there's just the whole thing about women being sexualized or whatever. But, I mean, you know, I think that it's definitely heavily male-dominated. But So that's sort of what brought up this idea was, like, okay... How much of that is actually the men dictating what happens and how much of that is women not taking the maybe not taking the chances or or utilizing certain opportunities is like so that's how it feels from my perspective right now. And that that was the cause of the frustrated Facebook post was this idea and of course my show could be stupid and maybe they just don't want to do it right <laughs> like that's always an option but like here I am I'm, I'm presenting an open forum to get your voice out and women who I've heard say they want that opportunity they want to be able to share their voice their opinion and when when given the opportunity from my perspective in my own little segregated world, I'm like, well, you didn't take it. So I'm curious is how much, how much blame do we put on each different sex? Do you know, like if we're blaming somebody or, or or trying to find a, a causality of of what keeps, are you not with me anymore? Here I'm talking. Dang it. We keep getting cut off because of Skype. You there? Yes. It might be better if you maybe if you keep your camera off. I pro- I just ranted for like I don't know how long you were not on the, the mic, but I just I'm went so off. I missed it. Um, no. So what I was trying to what what it made me think about is how much is it people choosing to participate as opposed to feeling like they're being left out from something. And I was I was thinking about this idea a lot. Like like so. I don't hang out with my friends that often, and I wonder, like, in in the last couple of years, I've been more focused on my work than, like, doing, like, social activity, and I start to wonder, like, okay, nobody calls me to hang out to go to the party or whatever, but I'm also not participating as well. Like, I'm not trying to make plans with people. Like, so that has been something that I was thinking about lately. So how much of of the lack of women in certain roles are a lack of choosing to participate, and how much of it is the idea of, of the good old boys club of keeping, like, oppressing women? Uh, I think very, like, just very traditionally speaking, I think that men 
tend to have a little bit bigger egos um, or they just are a little bit more in touch with their ego. So they tend to put themselves out there on a platform that maybe gets them more recognition. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of women tend to be a little bit quieter about their work. Um, but yeah, it's totally about participation. And that's like, that was a big thing that I had to deal with recently is learning how to present yourself to people and sell yourself as as an idea as a as an artist as opposed to just waiting around for somebody to find you sort mm -hmm. of making making yourself present and um yeah i think that that women tend to just kind of like be a little more quiet about it which then makes them feel like they're not involved but it is I think mostly, like you said, about about participating and choosing to participate and putting yourself in the middle of everything. And like, that's how you that's how you make friends. That's how you get, you know, galleries to talk to you is is putting yourself out there. Yeah. And uh, I want to thank you for for taking the time to, to do this, too. So like you, you were willing to step up and and sort of make your voice heard in this in this forum after a section of women decide and whether you know who knows maybe people don't even get my facebook messages or, or emails you never you never know what happens right actually that's bullshit actually i because with the with the creepiness of facebook you can always see if somebody saw oh, yeah. your message the little check mark shows up yeah, and then you wonder for days how come they haven't responded to you. <laughs> yeah, what kind of weird new phenomenon is that? I, I assume that every like I get so mad if somebody doesn't return a text message or a message, even though I don't return a lot of stuff as well. I totally understand what you're saying about taking about not being super active in in your social life with your friends. That was definitely something that I've had to do recently too. Is you know, behave, if you will, you stay in and you're just drawing all night instead of going out and partying with your friends and having to say no to all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. It's hard. It's and hard it, stuff to do. <laughs> that's kind of the, all right, PSA, all right. public service announcement for artists now. It's, um, that's one of the, the qualms of being an artist is the amount of time that you're forced to stay inside and make things. But and it's such it's such a weird dichotomy because you're also free to do whatever the fuck you want, <laughs> for the most part. Partial freedom. Yeah. Do you have headphones on? I do. You do? Should I not? No, you should. I just heard myself a couple times. That's the the trick is to not hear me twice. But sometimes that's the thing with uh. Skype. It acts like a pain in the ass. So um, <laughs> you're in the Bay Area now. Uh, did you did you grow up there? I did. I, uh, I was born and raised in San Jose, spent some time in Milpitas and Fremont, Modesto, Livermore, just kind of, kind of traveled around the Bay area a little bit. That's like where all my family is rooted. So there hasn't really been, you know, there's been a lot of times that I've tried to leave or I was convinced I was going to move somewhere else, but the Bay Area is such a hub of all the things that I love. Amazing food. You can be in the city and 10 minutes later you can be in the Redwoods. You're next to the water. And the, the pace of life here just sort of moves at the way that I like it. So I haven't I haven't found good enough reason to leave yet. Everyone thinks, or at least me, I think, you know, this is where I grew up. I should probably spend a lot of time living somewhere else. But uh haven't found good enough reason to do that yet. Right. 
Uh, and so you said your family also grew up in there, so you 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 got a couple generations. Yeah, well, my like my dad's side of the family came from Italy, then went to Chicago, and then from Chicago they all came to uh, to San Jose. So probably like three generations. And then my mom's side of the family, they all went back to like Mexico, Brazil. Uh, there's not very many of them that live here anymore. You have uh, some. Brazilian ancestry on your mom's side? Uh, Mexican, but for some reason they chose to go to Brazil maybe like 10 years ago or something. A bunch of her family just decided to go to Brazil. That's awesome. I want to go there. That's one of my to-do list things is to go to Brazil. I want to go to Rio. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's definitely on my travel list as well. There and Barcelona are way up there. Yeah, I'd definitely like to see Spain too. I, I think Brazil... I started training jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, two years ago. So, so it's almost like oh, yeah. a mecca thing. Totally. You know, like, go see the the roots and the history. And I, now, through the jiu-jitsu community, I have a bunch of friends down there. So, like, I, I have places to go. It's just a matter of buying a plane ticket, really. Oh, well, that's something to look forward to, something to save up for. If that's all you need, the plane ticket. Yeah, right. It's nice to have people take care of you while you're there. Yeah. Um, so were, were you influenced at a young age to be creative? Were your parents, um, sort of supportive of, of the (laughs) arts? I know you, Um, you started painting a little bit later in life. Is that? Yeah. You know, when, when I was younger, I remember my very first art project that I did was my brother and I discovered that if you call 911 on a payphone, you don't have to pay for it, which we thought was an amazing concept. <laughs> so we just kept calling 911 and telling them, you know, ridiculous things, not really understanding the concept of calling 911 at that age. Yeah. Um, so some police officers came and they thought that something was terribly wrong because these two children kept calling 911 and hanging up. So my stepmom made me make them like a a little art book or something to apologize. <laughs> and that was like the first art project I remember making. And I didn't really, I mean, I was always drawing and sort of arranging things when I was younger. I used to like love picking flowers and arranging them around, but I, I just got really into playing sports and I played soccer for like 11 years, maybe until I got kicked off the team. What did and you get kicked off the team for? <laughs> um, well, this was my high school team, and I, we were sort of at the young age where you start partying and you start experimenting. So a lot of the girls on my team would spend the night at my house the night before games, and we would sneak out and go be sort of reckless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you wake up at 6 in the morning, you have a 7.30 game, and, you know, we're all kind of a mess. And eventually the, the coach caught on that it was me behind all of this. Yeah. And when you play, you have to take, like, the vow of sobriety and that was clearly not happening, so I was I was done. And she said that she would make sure that no one ever uh, got me to play on their team. She's like, I'll make sure no coach ever picks you up again. Wow, so that's so that vindictive. <laughs> yeah, so that was my cue. I was done. And, yeah, around that time I was also, like, getting kicked out of my house. I finished high school sleeping in my car. It was just sort of, like, crazy. But when I moved out, from Livermore out to Berkeley was when I started seeing all of the, like the street art people were putting up was when I got introduced to the work of, you know, Barry and Margaret and 
that that sort of whole mission school thing that was that had been happening for a while. So that's when I started being way more creative and sort of experimenting a little bit. So what was that around like 2000? Yeah, that was like 2005. Mm -hmm. So that was like a little bit after that whole thing had really, really blown up. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That that was a, yeah, that was the time where I got introduced to it. And I was like, wow, this is really amazing. I sort of want to, I want to be involved in this. I want to do something. I want to have some level of participation. And it's just kind of been evolving ever since then. That was such a strange time period for art and I guess for the city of San Francisco, like this sort of, we haven't really seen a, like a big collective like that, like a, a like what they termed the mission school. Like we haven't seen any other schools really since then. You know what I mean? Right. I keep wondering what the next thing is going to be to come out of here. And I haven't, I haven't really seen it yet. There's the whole like, is the Oakland vibe a little bit that's happening? Well, there's sort uh, of a mass exodus, right? Like a lot of people, like a lot of artists are leaving San Francisco. Oh, yeah. I've lived in the same neighborhood in Oakland for seven years. So I've seen, I mean, seven years is not that long, but I've seen it change from the art murmur go to like a couple hundred people to now I think the numbers are up to 30,000 or something like that every single month I come into Oakland. And that and, is, you know, for people who don't who don't know, Oakland is a pretty fucking wild city. Like, <laughs> like there's a lot yeah. of shit going on in Oakland. Yeah, I've seen people start fires in the middle of the, the street, and the cops just park on one end. Like, they just park on each end of it, and they don't even say anything because I don't think that they want to instigate something that might happen. But, yeah, I've literally just seen people just start bonfires in the middle of the street. And cops just like, okay, do your thing. <laughs> and, what, in, in, like, during the uh, Occupy movement, you, there was some big turmoil in Oakland during some protests for that. And I know that the police got involved with, with shooting people with rubber bullets and, like, crazy-ass shit. But it, it almost has, like, a Wild West sense to it. <laughs> yeah, and all of that sort of happened... It's really close to my neighborhood, and it's it's really interesting to watch. Definitely, the the whole Occupy thing brought in thousands and thousands of out of town people, and there was a lot of local people struggling with the people from out of town, and you know the people that live there and have lived there, and that's their community are really protective of it, yeah. even though they don't even treat it that well, but they're very protective of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird thing, right? Like. Uh... You know, we see that with families, like maybe sometimes families don't treat each other all that well. But as soon as one is being threatened by someone outside of a family or something that there's like this this protection mechanism that kicks in. Right. There's the the slogan that a lot of people say, of, you know, keep Oakland uh, grimy, I think is what they say. And they they talk about, you know, hating the gentrification of it. But then they're upset that maybe they have some shitty job. It's like, well, this <laughs> yeah. gentrification is going to help you then. You're going to get a better job. <laughs> that's a that's an interesting point, like the fight to ward off gentrification. And it's such a – I'd like to look at the definition of the word or the, like the root of the word gentrification. I wonder if it has <laughs> like the etymology of it, if it has a uh, a negative connotation because in modern society it does. We look at it as white people taking advantage of – 
you know, a minority and utilizing their their cheap rent for their own benefit to make the neighborhood be more uh, higher higher level rents so that more white people come in. And that, that we look at right. that as a negative thing, although a lot of times we see neighborhoods get turned around to where the, there was, you know, maybe crackheads on the street every day or, or junkies and crime and violence and all sorts of shit that we as a society sort of deem as being negative, right? Like, without being judgmental of people who are in a down-and-out position, we we prefer not to have crackheads or even crack dealers on the corner of the street, right? Yeah. We prefer totally. not to have crack, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for me because I love the way that Oakland felt when I moved there, and there's some aspects of it that I don't like in what's changing. But at the same time, if it's giving more people opportunity to to succeed and take care of their families and themselves, and it's giving them, you know, knowledge and giving them tools to use to make their lives better, I think I think it's a great thing. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. There's lots of high rises going up and loft buildings, but lots of art galleries are also moving there. So I think that it's a it's a pretty good balance. And I would assume that. Like we were talking about the San Francisco exodus, that a lot of the gentrification is coming from uh, people who may not be able to thrive as well as they once did in San Francisco. Right. Or it could be right. from anywhere. And I, I heard Mike Giant is moving his warehouse down to L.A. too. And he's just like a San Francisco staple. You know, he's like a legend here. And when, when it just gets so expensive here that people like him who, you know, it's just sort of like a, a celebrity sighting almost when, you know, Mike Bryant comes to your art show or you see him <laughs> around town. But now he's just like, he's gone. <laughs> yeah, I think they're all, they got the Rebel 8 warehouse all set up in Los Angeles now. I think, I think he may be gone. He was just on, he was just on the show um, a couple episodes ago. Yeah, I saw that. Awesome. He's really cool. I like him. I'm stoked. He's uh, he's sending me down his new book. He just put out a, a like a 320 page book, like oh, wow. sp- spanning his whole history. The guy's a a, a beast. That's awesome. I remember running into him at the post office once. It was the first time I met him, and he was looking at my tattoos, and he told me that my tattoos would look good when I was an old lady. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a good like, compliment. He's done. Well, um, that's perfect. God, he's done a bunch of tattoos on me. I've been, I was getting tattooed from him, uh, like, 99, 2000. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is he still doing them? No, because he, he's, he's totally done doing tattoos now. But we were supposed to finish my whole left sleeve, but we got, like, three quarters of the way there. What uh, what new tattoos have you got? Well, a lot of people always ask me, um... Oh, I'm working on my right arm right now. This is like my my project, pretty uh-huh. much. Um, my friend Philip over at Old Crow in Oakland is working on it, and he's he's so amazing. I basically was just like, "Here's my arm. Do whatever you want." I have, I totally trust his style. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm trying to like focus on that, and then getting some work that Mark Cross started on me, probably like last year. Still trying to get that finished, but we keep missing each other in between New York and SF. Yeah. But soon enough. And a lot of people ask me if I tattoo or have asked me to design tattoos just based on the line work that I do. Yeah. And 
one day I'm hoping that, uh, that maybe I can start doing that. I, uh, another public service announcement. I, I have the same thing. A lot of people come to me for tattoo design. I actually had somebody tweet about me saying that I'm a, I'm an awesome tattoo designer as like, was like my title. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Oh Jesus fucking Christ. But I typically, you know, as somebody who gets tattooed, I know that I usually get a better tattoo if the tattoo artist drew what it is that they're tattooing, like in their right. own hand, you know? And, you know, obviously tattoo artists can do a multitude of different styles and things, but if really, like how you did with your with your buddy and said, you know, I trust you, just draw what you draw and, and make a cool tattoo, and you probably have the tattoo artist be super stoked to work on it and then in turn be happy to do the tattoo and really put in a strong effort to to do the tattoo. And not only that, but the reason the the cost of tattoos, part of that cost is is the amount of time that the artist has to use to to draw something. And even if you bring them a drawing, they're going to have to redraw it again and they're going to charge you. So you're almost like getting charged <laughs> twice anyway. Exactly. So I usually tell people just Bring yeah, you, people, find a, well, an art tattoo uh, artist that fits. Yeah, people ask me to do or to draw them a tattoo of a like of a calla lily or of a grim reaper. These are things that people have come and asked me to do. And I'm like, you're this is what your tattoo artist does. This is exactly why they're tattooing you. Yeah, they're it's one thing. To draw. This is what you're paying for. <laughs> it's one thing if they come to you and want to get something that is your design that you've already designed or something that's in your style that they want to see adapted. That's a that's a different type of story, as right. opposed to like a Grim Reaper drawing. Like, <laughs> yeah, but he asked me to do the Grim Reaper in my style. But like, when have you ever seen me draw that? <laughs> that's <laughs> the best. Any inclination that I was interested in drawing your Grim Reaper tattoo? <laughs> that's the best. I'll I more <laughs> commissions come to me that they're like, all right, I want to get a spaceship with a flying ape, uh, with wings and a Superman cape. <laughs> With clown shoes and a fucking bowl of water. It's like, what the fuck? I've never drawn that before in my life. Why would you come to me with that? That's a really specific idea, too. Wow. The last part, I looked over at my dog bowl, so that's where the bowl of water came from. (laughs) Awesome. Um, So once you sort of come into adulthood and decide to start making things, what was what was the process there? Uh, You you mentioned the mission school and and that sort of inspiration, which was a big inspiration for, I would say, uh, our generation of artists in, in a certain, you know, 25 to 30 range that 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 time period just pre Internet. Uh, I mean, you, you said 2005, but even like before that, the, that grouping of artists was getting a lot of exposure via magazines and and articles and different types of media that were pre-internet. So, what did you start doing right out the gate? Were were you interested in doing stuff on the street? Were you more interested in doing gallery work? Was there? Did you have any sort of specific focus or? Um, well, I was. I happened to be dating this guy who was pretty prolific in terms of painting uh, on the streets. So that's what I got into first. And then 
there was an incident where we were painting behind um, a burger spot. It's called Quarter Pounder. And uh, there's a fence there. So we were painting behind it. And there's these guys in an, an ambulance that we didn't realize were in the ambulance. And they got out. And they're kind of looking around. They could obviously smell the paint and we just hit the ground and there's three of us and we were just laying back there through the cans you know just pretending we were sleeping and then they started talking to us they were like hey we can see you you guys painting back there and I wasn't gonna stand up I was just like nope I'm gonna pretend I'm dead you know it's <laughs> like anything but if a friend of mine he stood up and he's like no man we're trying to just stay out of trouble we wouldn't be doing that we're just looking for a place to like sleep for the night and he kind of gave us a sideways look, and he's like, okay. He went into his car and came back with all these blankets and bottles of water for us. Oh, man. <laughs> it was just like, he was like, you kids be safe, you know, like, sorry to bother you, but, you know, here's some blankets to keep you warm. <laughs> I was like, oh, what a nice guy. Did you guys then, feel guilty? Uh, after that, I just, we did. We felt pretty guilty, and we gave all the blankets and water to some people sleeping over by the church over there. Yeah. But after that, I just got kind of tired of hopping fences and hiding from people and being out when it's super cold. And I got I got a lot of respect for people who do that, but it's just it wasn't really my thing. So I got more just into painting on found stuff, but I was still doing a lot of character painting. Um, and eventually, I. I just started doing drawings instead because they were just, it was just instant satisfaction instead of waiting, waiting for the paint to dry or finding the perfect piece of wood or something. And uh, somebody gave me all these old books and I started ripping out all the blank pages of the books mm -hmm. and just drawing on those. And that just sort of kind of took off into its own thing. And I've always been a pretty, pretty big collector after losing all of your belongings twice in your life you sort of uh, things start to hold sentimental value so I just started hanging on to all of these things and making these installations within my house and eventually a friend of mine decided that she was going to work with this space curating for them and she asked me to show my work and I was just like no way I was way too shy and embarrassed <laughs> just like no way I can't do it and she, oh, it took her a couple of weeks, but she really encouraged me and, and got me going. And I think I did probably my all the shows for the first two years or something where I was making art was with her. And as soon as you sell your first piece of art, you're like, wow, people actually like this shit? Okay. <laughs> and that sort of gives you a confidence boost. And once that happened and I sort of got a bit more confidence and sort of was stepping into that role, I... Yeah. the work started changing and evolving and yeah now I've been doing pretty much all of these illustrations not too much painting anymore um that you you mentioned losing everything twice in life um could you talk about that a little something that that was interesting to me is the idea of loss inspiring creation and mm -hmm. I've been on Easter and the day before Easter, I spent about five hours going watching tsunami footage from Japan and some other like the um, the Sumara. Uh, what was it in India? Or uh, I forget where the other one was. Uh, that was the recent severe one. 
Um, and there was something about the people, specifically in Japan, and I don't know if it's Japanese culture in general, but it, it brought up this idea that even though like people's whole cities were flattened, there's still this sense of inspiration in a lot of the people that it's important for them to rebuild and like build better and learn from it, you know, and it, it created a, a, a sense of uh, pride or, or community amongst a group of people who all suffered in a similar way. And I'm right. wondering if if that idea of losing everything could have was inspirational for you in terms of of creating. And then I'm I'm also curious if it creates a sense of um, pack ratedness. <laughs> Not that you're a pack rat. I don't you, you know or a hoarder or whatever. It, it depends on it depends on who you ask. There were definitely some friends of mine that are like Lauren. You're a hoarder. you got to get rid of some shit. <laughs> my dad was in my house recently, too, just looking around. He's like, man, what are you going to do if you move? He's like, you're going to have to get multiple trucks. You know, you have so much stuff. <laughs> um, but, yeah, losing everything. It's First time I lost everything was my stepmom threw it all away. So, basically, from age 0 to 17, I don't have anything. Like, I don't, I don't have any of those memories. And... Then maybe like two years later, it was all stolen from my car when I was moving. And it definitely teaches you about material value. You know, it's like it's just material. So the things that I have started collecting are very different. They're not of any worth to anybody else except for me. Like, I always think that if somebody were to break into my house, they would be so disappointed because <laughs> the, it's just filled with, like, I have baskets of hair and jars of hair from people that I'm really close to. Like, I collect hair because, well, I guess to go back when I was when I was young, I went to a, a Victorian museum and they do the morning art where they shave the person's head when they die and they color it with all these berries and different natural dyes, and they make these beautiful hair wreaths or tombstones, weeping willow trees. And I was really attached to the idea of your hair holding your information and your story. So whenever you're cutting your hair, that's like years of you and what you've put into your body, the environment that you've been around, and sort of the experiences that you've had. So I, I keep hair as sort of this memento of time spent with these people and experiences that we've had yeah and especially being in oakland where there's all these beautiful old homes that have housed families for generations and they can't afford to be there anymore so they're just leaving and they're throwing away everything because they have nowhere else to take it yeah so it's sort of like keeping a little piece of their story and and finding a safe place for it to exist so that it doesn't just get completely forgotten and doesn't get thrown away. And so I think that that's like same thing with the tsunami people. If I was there, I would be keeping, you know, broken fragments of my windows and old tires or just like anything that was that would remind me of the time before. And I think it, that a lot of pieces have that. There's just like a story behind them all and they hold your history, your experience. Is it important for you to to take these these items and reclaim them into making them uh, 
hold value again? Is there is there something in that idea of taking what was once trash or discarded, maybe incidentally, uh, and turning that back into a cherished item? Is that important? Yeah, I think that that's I think that's really important. Or just adding a human element onto it. Um, in terms of, you know, you see this old piece of metal that just looks like it doesn't separate it from anything else that you see. But if you just paint a couple lines on it, it's like, okay, there's this human element to it now. And yeah. somebody took the time to take this piece of trash and make it into something else that like held value for them. So even if it's just my own personal value, I do that with pretty much everything that I have. So I, I pick it up off the ground or in an old abandoned house somewhere, the train tracks or ever, and I try and put my little touch on it. Yeah. If Hold on one second. The goddamn landscapers are here again. They show up for every single podcast. It's <laughs> unbelievable. And I keep it every you time I say, oh, excuse me. Yeah, it always sounds like, oh, you have landscapers. But I live in an apartment that has like a, uh, they're, and they're all privately owned so that the owners like pay a company to come out and clean everything up every week. But every Tuesday, uh. the motherfuckers show up with their goddamn <laughs> weed whackers and blowers and just make a ruckus. <laughs> right right at around this time, every time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so excuse the little bzzz in the background. Hopefully they'll go I don't away. I don't think I hear anything. I know the the people on the other end, on your end, never hear it, but it picks up in the in the recorder for some reason. Uh, Bastards. So hey, isn't I, I wanted to ask you this? Isn't what is it with hair that when it's removed from the body, it becomes disgustingly gross? <laughs> I know. I think Instantly, it's most gross when it's in the shower when it's in the shower the ah. shower drain and you just pull out this long strand of it because <laughs> i you know um, I've, I've been shaving yeah. my own head for for 20 plus years so like every time i i shave my mop off it's like uh the hair is kind of gross like you don't want to really touch it but you're telling me that you have a large collection Oh yeah, I have a really big collection of it. I have many, many jars filled with it. I have a big basket just in my room, very close to my bed, just filled. Um, yeah, it's it's getting a little difficult to manage actually sometimes. So, are you able but, uh, to make stuff out of it? Yeah, totally. I've made some really well, like the longer strands of it. I've made some really cool hanging mobile pieces. A lot of times, I if I frame the the artwork that I make, I'll um, I'll add like a lock of my own hair into it in a little circle. Um, yeah, I've I've made drawings where the the hair on it is like a big afro kind of hair, and I'll put actual hair in it. <laughs> you know it's what's like, interesting about that is that you know when we make art objects, we have this idea that they're going to last a lot longer than our than our human body. You know, like there's this thing that's going to last longer than our existence. And there's mm-hmm. some interesting ideas behind that, like attaching your DNA to the things that are made so that your DNA can actually exist on some level far from oh. from when your body is is on this earth. Some collectors have asked me, you know, how archival the work is based because of the paper that I do it on or if the paper is going to, you know, 
uh, the, it'll be stained at all, or sometimes a corner will be a little bit missing. Uh-huh, and sure. people ask how archival it is, but it's like if the paper fades or spots, like I love that. Yeah. That's like, it just adds, it's like a, a timestamp, you know, it shows you how old the piece is. And it's, I think that it's pretty natural for things to return to their natural state. And, you know, paper is pretty, you know, you just get it wet and it vanishes. Yeah. So I, I kind of like that element of, of things sort of disappearing after a while, or you can, you can tell that they're aged. Yeah. I love that. That's a, for people who paint on metal that has rust on it, they'll know that a lot of times the rust will seep through the painting. I've had a, a bunch of paintings where it's like, just be, there was rust underneath and it popped through like a white section or something and just looks fucking awesome. Yeah, I love that. And that's not something it's like can... if the corner of the page is ripped, they're like, what? Why do you care? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So, what's your process now? Are, are you, I know you work for the shooting gallery and White Walls, right? Is, uh, is, maybe we can talk about that. I, um, I kind of look yeah, at the shooting I, gallery really... like an ex girlfriend. <laughs> Is that weird? You won't say that again? I look at the shooting gallery at, like, an ex-girlfriend. Like, galleries that, you, that oh. artists no longer work with anymore, like, it becomes this almost, uh, like, boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. And it, I was thinking about it today. Like, it's weird how you could be in a relationship with somebody and share the most intimate details about one another, spend all your time together, uh, really get to know one another, then all of a sudden you pretend like you don't know one another. <laughs> Just out of the blue. It's such a strange human trait. Yeah. I find that I burn bridges that. a lot, but not intentionally. Did you burn this bridge? I don't know. Well, I, I, it fe- like I said, it feels like an ex-girlfriend. So if that Aww. makes any sense. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe we'll have you back sometime. I'd like to. I don't know. Maybe. Um, so what? What? Do you, what do you do there? Uh, what's um? What's your? What's your focus while you're there? Is it? Uh, my my new title is the assistant director. So fancy. Um, so I am. I'm. I do a lot of our shipping and arranging with collectors to make sure they're there to get their pieces. Um, And also when the artists get here, sort of figuring out how they want their installation to go, what materials they need, um, and sort of linking them with our art handlers and just making sure that everybody is on the same page. Has 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 being in that world sort of made you look at the art making process or like the art displaying process differently. Cause I know like I, I ran a gallery down here in San Diego for a few years and it totally made me look at a gallerist's work, like what they need to do and how that end of the spectrum of, of the art world works. Has it, has it made you look at your art making process any differently? Totally. I used to think that as so long as you make, it's something that was amazing you were going to get recognition no matter what like so long as you're you're making stuff that's true to you that eventually someone is just going to come along and find you but definitely being here has made me open myself as a person a lot more and become able to just start a conversation with somebody instead of just being shy and knowing that you need to you need to put yourself out there because if no one knows then like 
how are they ever going to? If you don't tell them and if you don't make it known, then it's rare that somebody is just going to like know automatically. Um, so being being like a good personality and uh, meeting those kind of people definitely definitely affects where and how you're going to show work. And that's also been a- giving myself a a lot of time to work on on stuff. Whereas before, I would just rush everything in the last month. But it's hard to make something that has different ideas, but is still really cohesive in just one month. Yeah, there's no doubt. And everything I, is just going to look the same for I, your show. I find it's even more difficult sometimes to make stuff cohesive over a long period of time. Like even for me personally, uh, and if I could project for a minute. Um, a lot of times I find within a three-month chunk of working really fucking hard, so many new ideas and techniques and different thought patterns emerge just from the basis of doing the work, like putting in the hours, that I have mm-hmm. a, a lot of times my shows have been like like two-thirds one subject, and then the second third is the evolution of new ideas that came out of like overly going over one particular topic or subject or grouping of ideas. Yeah. Sometimes I, well, I just did a show recently and I had this big chunk of work and there was just a little chunk that I was like, what was I doing? And this doesn't match with anything <laughs> else. And sometimes you just got to put that stuff in a corner altogether away from everything else. Yeah. And that's like, maybe this is the, it's either the the stuff you started with or the stuff that you ended with. And that'll be like the, the, stepping stone for whatever happens next it's, it's hard for me to look at it sometimes though i won't realize it's so different until the very end when i see everything all together i'm like wow you know this really just this does not fit that exactly you don't really see it until all the work goes up on a white wall somehow like it's really difficult when stuff is just stacked up around the studio or wherever you work to to recognize that this sort of transitional shift has happened and for me i'm super add right so like i get bored kind of easily so if i do a series of portraits or something i'm like well fuck that i just want to make something fucking random that isn't that now but there's something like it almost like gallery shows need to have a cohesiveness and i think that's why some of maybe the more art stars have a tendency to I did that in air quotes for all the listeners who couldn't see art stars was in quotation <laughs> air quotes I'm glad you did that. <laughs> that you know we see a repetitive sort of work that comes out of some of these artists that get recognition for a particular style that almost like they get trapped into doing the same thing all the time to to make the galleries and to make the collectors happy, and also to make that cohesive show. I I wonder if people ever get stuck based on just that idea of, like, I need to make this whole thing cohesive. Yeah, or, you know, this thing sold, so I should make a bunch like that so they'll sell. Um, I think a lot of it can also be booking shows too close to each other, so it doesn't really give you much time in between shows to progress and come up with different ideas or have experiences that inspire these new ideas yeah. um i i see that sometimes for sure you know an artist does like six shows a year i'm like how how do you do that <laughs> i just saw you posted um on your facebook the the cow skull painting with the patterning along the the oh, eyes and face 
Yeah, the skull that belonged to my uncle's all-white pony named Pete. It was a horse? Yeah. Oh, wow. I thought for some reason, that totally looked like a cow skull at first, but I think I'm just, in my memory, I'm putting horns on it. (laughs) That's so weird how our brains do that. Like, it'll decide what the memory is, even if it needs to sort of construct its own version of what it was like the like playing telephone like just in this short time period i've already made yeah, i turned a house skull into a or a horse skull into a cow skull there's that one quote about this the quote about remember being a, a far more amazing human feat than the act of forgetting like <laughs> yeah you can see something and then later you actually remember that you saw it it's so amazing yeah <laughs> forgetting stuff is easy like remembering is hard um, so you, you've been doing a lot of this this patterning. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how how you came to start working in this way? Is it uh, does it have to do with the objects that are around you? I have a feeling that there's that you have a lot of lace and doilies. Is that <laughs> is that fair? I got a lot of everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I do. I definitely do have a lot of like old vintage lace. Uh, old tablecloths and yeah, I, I got all sorts of uh, granny stuff laying around. Um, Is symmetry important you know to you? The, oh yeah, I love, love symmetry. I'm I've been really obsessed with numbers my whole life. I've never liked odd numbers. Even like even when I was using a microwave as a child, I would not let the microwave stop on an odd number. It always had to stop on the number two or ten. Like always be there. So, so symmetry, it just sort of has to do with that, so being able to break something down evenly. Because that's, I, sorry, you broke up a, a good chunk of that. Uh, um, yeah, just even numbers. Love even numbers. And I like to be able to break things down evenly into, into parts. I don't like to have one piece left over at all, but, uh, yeah, I've always just been really obsessed with, with even numbers, odd numbers kind of like give me a weird feeling, except for the number nine. Number nine is a very good number. <laughs> Why is that? Um, Why is nine okay? Because it's uh, divisible you know, by itself? I tend, I tend to look at numbers in terms of, of people. So like the number nine reminds me of a, of like a long hair, dark skinned, super cool kind of like skater dude. I don't know. That's just what nine makes me think of. Wow. And the number the number seven makes me think of like a a mom driving a minivan around. Think things like that. You know, I, I have associations of these these numbers in terms of like characters. Um That's interesting. The, the number two and the number zero has have always been really close numbers to me. <laughs> Do, does that have any uh, connection to your dream states? Is, do any of those those ideas come out of dreams by chance? <clears throat> you know, sometimes, but I, I notice that I I dream more if I haven't been smoking pot. Like if I oh, yeah. if I smoke. I, I don't really remember my dreams very much, but if I, I've been doing a breathing exercise, I used to be really into the idea of astral travel uh-huh. and the whole like diesel bub astral realm thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, astral projection. I read on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was really into that idea and the idea that you could sit in a room with a group of people and you could all be projected to the, the fucking period 
Hermes or something, you know, you yeah. could all hang out there together. Uh, that was a really cool concept for me. But, you know, a lot of times when I go to sleep, I pass out and I wake up at like three in the morning or, you know, say I go to bed at midnight, I'll pass out for a couple hours and wake up at three in the morning, like hanging off of my sofa. All the lights are on. I still have all my paint out and everything. Sometimes I'll just like take a minute and I just fall asleep. So I tend not to remember my dreams that much, but I've been getting into breathing practice before I go to bed, trying to remember these dreams more and more. You know what but, helps uh, too? Is if you write them down. Like if you write them down as soon as you wake up and you'll you'll have a tendency to start remembering them. But I find that same thing. If if I smoke pot late at night, uh, I, I won't remember my dreams at all. But if there's days where I don't have any weed, like today, which is driving me batshit crazy... Um, <laughs> I'll have really lucid dreams, really vivid, like sometimes even more likely to have nightmares, it seems like, or like those really? types of dreams where you really like, it's a movie playing and you wake up and you remember the entire movie. Wow. I, I only remembered lucid dreaming as a child. And when I was a child, I had no idea what was happening, but I could make it happen that I was laying, uh, in bed and I would just get to this certain point and I could make myself get to that point where I would just start floating up off of my bed and I would get to the ceiling and I would be all sorts of like crushed up there because I was still trying to go <laughs> upward. Yeah. And then I would just start crawling all around my walls. And I, w- I didn't even think of it as a child, but it's like at that, I think when you're a child, it's the easiest because you're innocent, you have no expectations and your imagination is way more open yeah. Whereas now, if I were to feel that, I might snap myself out of it just simply by being a little bit scared. Yeah, or knowing the laws of gravity, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, like knowing the <laughs> physics of it. Exactly. Rad. Well, cool. We got about we got about fifty minutes. Um, was there anything else you wanted to get out there? You want to plug uh, plug anything? We can get you on uh, Facebook. So, do you do you have a see, website? Yeah, I actually have been really bad about updating, updating my website. I update my Tumblr a lot, which is just peptalk.tumblr.com. Or, I mean, if you just, like, Google my name, you can find a bunch of stuff. What am I doing next? Uh, I'm driving to New Mexico next, which is going to be really awesome. I've never been. I've never even been to the Grand Canyon or anything. Brad. going to be doing that, collecting a bunch of stuff. I'm sure. And... Uh, I'm pretty much just going to be taking it really, really easy until I have a show at Shooting Gallery in October. That's going to be like what I'm collecting for and painting for and just trying to to make that be as awesome as it can be. Right. I've been enjoying your installations. I know. I think I, I read some interviews that you did maybe that had some imagery from some stuff. And you had the – there was one set of pieces that had um, – would look like uh, guitar tubes, like amplifier tubes. Is that you've been painting on glass a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah. That I've been whole set looked on rad. All sorts of tubes and light bulbs and all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, there's these light bulbs I've been painting. They're like they're the red sodium lights uh-huh. that have mercury inside of them. Rad. So you're breaking really them. Interesting contrast to do this beautiful light sort of lace-like painting on these light bulbs that hold something that's so incredibly toxic. Yeah. 
uh, <laughs> I hope someone doesn't break one and something bad happens, but <laughs> I'm sure. Be uh, all right. um, yeah. And I've been doing installations with my friend shrine. Who's out of, he's actually based out of LA. He does installations at Coachella every year. Um, I think he's doing one in Ireland, Australia, Ecuador. Like he does installations all over the place. That's that's his thing. Mm-hmm. So working with him has definitely got me into doing bigger, bigger stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. And hopefully he and I will do something again shortly. We just had a show together last month. Right. Cool. So um, hopefully we'll get some listeners over your way, and uh, good luck with the with the upcoming show. Um, yeah, come visit us. I know it's been so long since I've been to San Francisco. It's I always talk. It's my sister city. I I consider it my second home. Your neglected sister. She misses you. I know. I know. I've been. You know, <laughs> Portland's been coming up a close a close second, and I've been spending more time with her. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, if not here. I'll probably see you in Miami. I know. We didn't run into each other this last year. I was surprised. Or I didn't go. Oh, I guess that makes sense then. It would be hard to see you there if yeah. you weren't there. Yeah. I was supposed to do a mural there with um, Living Walls, the Living Walls Project, uh-huh, but yeah. that, uh, that ended up not happening. Hey, but you know what? This coming year, sure. Cool, Lauren. Well, um, I want to thank you again for taking the time to shoot the shit with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully I see you soon. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Lauren. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.